after the United States violates the deal and goes out of the deal, it is not so that the U.S.'s standing suddenly, miraculously is restored just because a new president comes in. on everybody happy sunday or monday morning wherever you may be this is the habituation room podcast live stream i am your host francesca fiorentini you know me from that thing that one time and that one post that you liked um we have such a good show today and thank you for being here early it is a an hour early if you're listening in the future that means nothing to you time is merely something that you put on pause as you shower and listen to this podcast. That's all I want to know. I'm not going to pry any more than that. Anyway, uh, we're, we're, we're streaming an hour earlier, uh, 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. Glad to have y'all here. Um, so glad we got the Frantifa mounting up for this amazing show. We've got comedian Amr Rahman, um, or Rahman, as I was corrected in pronouncing his name, and I'm going to get that H out there. Um, also, foreign policy analyst Trita Parsi is here. He's going to Iran-splain to us, and I'm very excited about that. Um, there's been some clamor for more fo- foreign policy analysis on a Sunday evening, because, like, what a better way to start the week than, like, a lot of anxiety. Um, and that's how I want to start my week. So I'm so glad y'all are here. Uh, if you haven't already, hey, subscribe to this channel and follow this channel uh, on on Twitch. Follow, subscribe, uh, sub up, whatever that means on 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 Twitch. Get get Bezos's money and and give it on over to this channel. We appreciate that. If you're on YouTube, make sure you've rung the bell. There's like a little bell icon that you should press. That way, you know every time we're going live and every time there's a new clip out that you should watch. Maybe something you missed. And also, we have a Patreon. This show has no sponsors. It's you guys. It's the people. It is a collective effort. It is a, an, uh, a labor of love. And so, patreon.com slash room. Thank you so much. $1, $2, any dollars helps. Um, there are uh, bonus episodes that you get early access to, in addition to a number of other perks that will be mentioned on the website. But... Um, we just had such a good bonus episode on Friday with uh, Raphael Shimanov, who is a New York City-based activist. We talked all about Andrew Cuomo, why he really needs to resign. Um, we talked about Andrew Yang. We talked about all the Andrews. Um, Andrew Yang, who is running to be mayor of that city. The primary is coming up, so we dug into it, and it was such a good episode. Matt Lieb, comedian and life partner Matt Lieb, was on the show. Super fun and funny, so... If you're a patron, you can listen to that now. If not, on Tuesday, it will be available to all because, you know, I believe in uh, distributive uh, justice or something. Redistributive economic. Anyway, don't quote me. We don't have to do any of that. Um, But for the people who've become patrons, thank you so much. And I just wanted to thank you with the way that we always thank people every single week on the show. And for 
all the people who are tier one subscribers or tier three subscribers on Twitch, and for some of those big tippers out there, which you can still tip the show, Venmo, TBR-Live, Cash App, TBR-Live, this one is for you. Thank you to Mike R, Spacer Woman, Anya H, Nicholas R, J E, Jordan L, all new patrons at $10 or more a month. Thank you to the big tippers, to Haya S, and to Edgar C every single week coming through. Thank you so much. To tier one subscribers on Twitch, Kin of Wolf, Rodney1234. John Mizay, TX2Trill, Antifa, Tumble025, Jessica Keeble, Jen D, Piss for Pink, Andy from Ohio, Goku Just Saying, Goku Just Saying, CC Courtney93, It's Project Time, Crazy Hawaiian NPA, and so many more. Thank you for that, and thank you for your continued support. I will get to everyone very soon. And just as a reminder, if you don't have cash right now, I get it. Uh, times are tight. The stimulus is not coming through uh, soon enough and or going to a bunch of other shit that you need. Hey, give this podcast five stars on you, uh, on, on iTunes. That helps. That's just as good as money. And thanks to all the lovely people who've written reviews. I read them. I read them to my cat. Then we just like, she reads them to me. Then we fall asleep in a little cuddle puddle. It's very cute. Without further ado, um, we have such a good uh, fucking week, but it's been a rough week. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. It's been tough, and uh, I'm bitching about a little bit of it. I think y'all know that uh, there's been a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes over the last year in the United States, um, you know, and now we're seeing what happens when you have a white supremacist who doesn't take responsibility for his own failings as president, who then blames an entire country and an entire people and calls the China, calls the, the COVID-19, the China virus, Wuhan flu, Kung flu, all that other BS. And now people are out and about and somehow taking out their anger, anger on Asian elders um, because, you know, their dicks are small. And that's really all I can say uh, about that. And obviously this week you, there was the murder of eight people in, uh, in massage parlors in, in Atlanta, Georgia. I've spoken a lot about that on other shows. Um, I urge everyone to read the stories of the people who were murdered. Um, every time something like this happens, it's bad enough in and of itself. And then you have things like a police spokesperson saying, he had a really bad day. He's a sex addict. Did you know? Oh my God. Fool, nobody asked you to do that. No one fucking asked you to just launder the murderer's words into the public space. Shut up. Don't do that. Stop. Then there's things like the husband who is Mexican-American, of one of the victims was arrested and held for two hours by cops because they thought he was the murderer. Cool, 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 man. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he was real listened to as his as his partner da laid dying. So there's just added layers of what are the police good for, which we keep on coming back to, which is why later on in the show we're going to talk about, um, you know, if not cops, what about something else? But 
I think the biggest thing that I'm bitching about and I want to talk to Trita Parsi about is the ways that sure you have stupid pig headed right wingers talking about racism and, uh, and, and Asian Americans in the dumbest ways that sort of we let wash over us because we don't imagine that people could be so stupid as to blame an entire population for COVID-19. But alas, they do. But then there's the other more subtle, and I would say where liberals and Democrats start to coalesce and agree with what Republicans um, also put out when it comes to anti-China rhetoric, which is a very like tough on China. We need to, you know, make sure to rein in China. How are we going to step to China's power as if we haven't been engaged in a like mutually beneficial economic, like, you know, orgy for years and decades now now we're going to turn around and be like hey why come we no have no jobs like what do you what the fuck dude you anyway point is is democrats play into this all the time and uh media outlets play into this all the time even if they're like you know well we don't want war but something's got to be done about china like the ways that that also trickles down into overall um, perceptions of Asian Americans, perceptions um, of equating people's governments with people themselves, right? Or people's, not even governments, where people's parents immigrated from, where they immigrated from, right? Where they might have escaped from, to seek asylum in the United States from. And so um, I don't think the Democrats are off the hook here when it comes to playing into that. And uh, it bothers me that we are sort of headed to this like inevitable clash with China. And just this week, Secretary of State Abe, uh, Abe Lincoln, I want to call him Abe Lincoln because his last name's Blinken. And I'm reminded of Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> but his name is uh, something else, Blinken. The point is this Blinken. <laughs> he goes, you know, he's there's like a summit in Alaska and he meets with, you know, he's like meeting with the Chinese ambassadors and their counterparts. And he's like, you know, China is acting in a in like what was how did he phrase it? It was uh, he's threatening. They're threatening a rules based order. And it's like, yeah, America, I think you've lost the cred to lay down a rules based order in the world. Um, and so, again, I'm glad we don't have Trump's foreign policy, but this ratcheting up of like, you know, oh, China's got to behave, even though once again, we've kind of been cool with them for a while. Like, yeah, please lend us lend us more money. You take our debt. Da -da 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 -da. You produce shake weights and Nutribullets and fireworks. OK. <sighs> Let's bring in our guest for the hour. Um You've probably seen some of his viral uh, stand-up bits about reverse racism, about punching Nazis. The guy drops these nuggets of gold and then just pieces out to specifically Istanbul, where he's joining us from a like three in the morning haze of glory. Um, I am so excited to bring in Melbourne-based, but not currently Melbourne-situated <laughs> stand-up comedian, Please welcome Amr Rahman. Hello. What's going on? Thank you for having me. And <laughs> and I'm quite impressed that I, I managed to figure it out in time to be on today. Because I was 100% <laughs> convinced that I was 24 hours ahead of schedule until I saw the tweet saying, it's on in an hour. You, you were about to go to sleep is what you told me. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was going to be a deep sleep. I would not have picked up my phone if your producer called. <laughs> yeah, you did give us your number. Uh, we'll put it in the chat so everyone can uh, harangue you. Sure, and... yeah, yeah. Send their feedback directly to me. Amr, <laughs> um, we start off the show every every single week the same exact way, which is asking our guest comedian, what are you bitching about now? Which is just a real bright tone, as you could hear from my sort of rant there. Um, but what are you bitching about, Amr, today? I'm bitching about, and I haven't stopped bitching about since I saw it, this trailer for this CBS show called United States of Al. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no. Oh, you'll know soon. Okay. It is a sitcom. Uh-huh. It's a sitcom. It, it's in that kind of King of Queens, like early 2000s-ish kind of style about a Marine returning home from war, trying to readjust to life at home, and who's oh. there to help but his translator from Afghanistan who no. comes to live with his family. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, uh, one of people's biggest complaints is that the Afghan guy is not played by an Afghan. He's like an Indian actor. Of course not. But yeah. I, I, I truly feel that even if an Afghan played that role, that would not diminish how demeaning and horrifically racist the entire premise of this, this show is. It's, oh, and it's made by the guy who made Big Bang Theory. That's, that's the other, only oh, other thing. I was going to be I guess, yeah. but who is it? It was either going to be, yeah, it was either that bad. It was either Catherine Bigelow or Big Bang Theory people. Oh, my yeah. God. It's, it's really, is... it promises to be truly horrendous on every level. How could you not tell me you were having marriage problems? I could have fixed it. From Afghanistan? It's not the moon. We have Wi-Fi. I... I'm looking forward to filleting that sitcom on social media. Like I like if they have no Afghans or Muslims or anyone writing on it or like any vets. I don't know. That seems so. I I saw somewhere so that they bad. did have. I saw somewhere that they did have Afghans writing on it. Really, but uh, you know what? I just feel like I I don't care who's responsible for making this. It is terrible. Like it's objectively terrible. Anyone who puts their name to it, you get filleted. Yeah, like it's one thing to if it were like an HBO sort of dramedy, but like a CBS laugh track sitcom. The whole time I served in Afghanistan, Al was my interpreter. Hey, welcome. Let me get you a beer. Dad, no alcohol. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. No, your son should be sorry for talking to you with that tone of voice. <laughs> I like him. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you translator. You know, I mean, they don't even make, I mean, it's like Fuller House level. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's really that horrific. I mean, I didn't even think this format really existed anymore, but they're bringing it back. There's going to be like a, a bad waterboarding joke in like the pilot <laughs> episode. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> Shaney's going to be somewhere just cackling. Oh, and there's, oh, there's just every, every kind of sitcom trope is it like in the trailer there's like this little tender moment because he's like the godfather to the niece or whatever like it's just it's everything it's everything that you've missed damn dude i i will say i've been there's a lot of afghan like um uber drivers and lyft drivers in the bay area where i used to live and every time you know you're like oh you know you make shit chat and you're like oh so where are you from and Every like sometimes when it's like actually one one driver gave me he gave me a free ride. I mean, I, I paid him, but he gave me like a free ride back from 
over the bridge. Anyway, the point was like the nicest person I've ever met. And also like, oh, anyway, well, I was just a translator for 10 years during the war in Afghanistan. And oh. I was like, cool. wow. Oh, and like happy to be out, you know, happy to bring my family back to the States. But damn the stories like like I would want to see that, like something from that but perspective. Now, instead of listening to those stories, when you're in that Uber, you can be like, hey, I know I watched that CBS show. <laughs> And you can connect so much more quickly with his experience. Oh, yeah. You're just like Abdul from the CBS show. Like, You're oh, God. You're just like the Indian guy pretending to be an Afghan guy. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, CBS, we, we will be there ready and waiting to cancel you. But I, and I also feel like it's the perfect thing for, for the Biden era. Like this like schmaltzy symbolism, thinly masking. Eternal militarism is just never, ever going to fade. Schmaltzy symbolism masking eternal militarism is, wow, man. Yeah. Is it, it's three in the morning there? Why, I hate why you. Is, why, why has CBS not hired me? Amr, I'm so glad to have you here. We've got three stories for this week. Um, so much has happened. The vaccine hunger games are pretty much in full swing here in the United States. Uh, Biden tripped while walking up some stairs. There's an ongoing U.S.-Mexico border crisis. The House passed the Dream and Promise Act. And racist murderers are apparently just sexist or uh, sex addicts. Sex addicts? Sex addicts. I can speak. You guys, this is the week where... This was the week where the Biden administration raised the bar on security clearances and let go of a number of White House staffers for having previously smoked weed, which is a big change from the Trump administration's policy of firing you if you didn't have any blow. <laughs> um <laughs> Even though it's legal in 14 states smoking weed, uh, multiple staffers were terminated for admitting to have having inhaled as former President Clinton swore he did not with weed and Biden swore he did not with human hair. Um, of course, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that there were additional factors, not just the weed smoking at play for the number of what she called small number of ind individuals, so not very many, who were terminated. Um, let me guess, they had too much empathy and wanted to decriminalize marijuana altogether? Like what, what else was there? Um, clearly the Biden administration sees marijuana use as a public, marijuana use as a public servant as disqualifying. And I personally think, I don't know what you think, Amr, but I think that not using marijuana as a public servant is disqualifying. Like how can we trust people to run our government who've never been high? You know, like if you've never been a, in a different state of mind than your own like elite Harvard Beltway brain, you know, like that's not sobriety. That's sociopathy. It's a it's it's a lot of uptight people in a White House where no one has ever smoked weed. This is, you should we very, should just hotbox that shit at this point. It's such a weird like bombing Syria and fire everyone who smokes weed. <laughs> and what? It's so wild. It's very, but you know, you have a former DA as vice president. This is the kind of thing you're going to get. This is, you know. That's sorry. very true. It just this seems is the kind of narky so... type of thing that's going to happen in the White House. Dude, that is true. And like, which means to me, like, first of all, they all smoke. Kamala smoked weed. Come on. 
You tell me you didn't smoke weed, Kamala. Hey, I think she said that she did. Right? I mean, after Obama said that he did a little well, bit, I wasn't well, it that's aren't we done? Kamala Kamala also claimed to listen to Snoop and uh, a tropical quest or someone at a time when their albums had not even been released. Maybe Tupac. Kamala said a lot of stuff trying to be cool. So maybe maybe Kamala never did smoke weed. Maybe she did it. And maybe she's taking revenge on everyone else who, who has. Like she I was never fun, DA. She's just doing yeah. it for the cred. <laughs> you know, D, that, that prosecutor cred. And, um, and also, these are like, these are people who came in with them, right? Like these are transition, like Biden staffers who came in and now have been told actually, no. You yeah. Go. Yeah. Wow. And generally they're always, they're like younger, obviously, you know, um, not obviously, but I'm like, I guess they were younger. Like we didn't, wasn't just invented. I mean, it was invented in forms that I don't know if anyone should be using, uh, as in like, you know, like sh whatever the shard stuff is. What's the one where it's like, just like shards of THC that you, you know, basically crack pipe smoke. I'm doing, I'm, I'm <laughs> What if, it's like freebasing THC. Um, I'm right. I'm not getting it right, y'all. Tell me what it is. Um, oh, I'm dabs. Sorry, Thank you. Becca's telling me it's dabs. It's also Anthony Blinken and dabs, just so everyone knows. And maybe Anthony Blinken should do a dab now and then. He's dabbing right now. Exactly. And if, and it's no Kamala. It's not this dabbing. It's just it's like it is freebasing weed. So it's too strong. I don't want to have too much sympathy for them because I assume as Biden staffers, they're like generally like annoying people, but it seems like a sucky way to lose your job for all the yeah. other, especially after being told, I guess they were also told initially that it wouldn't be a big deal. And then they confess. And then later on, they're like, look what you said here. <laughs> too bad. On a serious note, right? If that's their posturing to their own staff members, uh, like, what do you think they're going to do about, you know, expunging you know, the the records of, you know, nonviolent drug offenders who have been convicted for having weed or smoking weed? Like, it doesn't bode well if that you have like such little sympathy for your own staff. Um, also, and it's the year like, 2021. Also, I feel like it's 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 kind of a public thing, right? It's not like something that got leaked or whatever, like they've commented on it, like so when they do something public like that, I feel like they're trying to send a signal or a message to someone that cannot really figure out who, who does this play to exactly. John McCain. All right. <laughs> like, Wherever he may be. Inside our own team. Yeah. <laughs> we're locking up our friends first. And then we're coming for the rest of you. You think so Kamala is the one doing it? Is Kamala dragging them out? <laughs> I... I this lady laughed about, she laughed about jailing parents for their kids not going to school. I can't imagine her calling people up and being like, hey, just want to talk. You anyway, said you I've smoked it we too, did you're it, fired. We did it, Joe. We got rid of the pot smokers, Joe. My God. It's, yeah, it's so random and it's such a throwback to like, I feel like Nancy Reagan's in there at this point. Like, what are we doing? Um, anyway, I, I, I think the funnest part, and I don't have this clip, but apparently Fox News has become all pro-weed now in response to this, Excellent. which 
I think is progress. I mean, maybe this was like a 7D chess reverse psychology to get them, <laughs> you know, to Tucker get their Carlson's viewers. Just becoming the biggest pot advocate. Fuck, dude. Talk about someone who's never been high. Uh, moving on. This was the week where Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin exchanged some words. And after a new national intelligence report revealed that while Russia didn't meddle in the election infrastructure of the 2020 election, unlike in 2016, uh, it did use proxies to push influence narratives to denigrate Biden's campaign and support then President Donald Trump, to which I say we know we're on the Internet. We see it. Um, when asked about the report in Russia, generally, Biden supposed, supposedly called Vladimir Putin a killer, which wouldn't be that far off base. Hello, many opposition leaders, including the survivor of a poison attack currently being held in a penal colony right now. Um, but listen to how this happened. Did he really say he's a killer? Just listen to this whole this little chunk of interview with uh, uh, Stephanopoulos, George Stephanopoulos. Putin authorized operations during the election to under denigrate you, support President Trump, undermine our elections, divide our society. What price must he pay? He will pay a price. I, we had a long talk, he and I. We've, I, I know him relatively well. And I, the conversation started off. I said, I know you and you know me. If I establish this occurred, then be prepared. You said you know he doesn't have a soul. I did say that to him, yes. And to end, his response was, we understand one another. I wasn't being a wise guy. I was alone with him in his office. That's how it came about. It was when President Bush had said, I've looked in his eyes and saw a soul. I said, looked in your eyes, and I don't think you have a soul. And looked back at me and said, we understand each other. Look, most important thing dealing with foreign leaders, in my experience, and I've dealt with an awful lot of them over my career, is just know the other guy. So you know Vladimir Putin. You think he's a killer? Mm-hmm. I do. So what price must he pay? The price he's going to pay, well, you'll see shortly. I'm not going to, there's, by the way, we ought to be able, that old, that trite expression, walk and chew gum at the same time. There are places where it's in our mutual interest to, to uh, work together. That's why I renewed the START agreement with him. That, that occurred while he's doing this. That, but that's overwhelming in the interest of humanity that we diminish the prospect of a nuclear exchange. Okay. <laughs> so i have so many thoughts on this um amr do you, like i just want to say my first initial thought is fuck george stephanopoulos like the media's the incredible desire. leading question oh my god the, so what are you gonna do to him are you gonna I, I, you're you gonna a loser. Start are you gonna fight him yeah yeah. Do you think he's a killer? Okay. Well, then what do we do with killers? Like, just so bloodthirsty. It's like I leading just, him down. This little primrose, like, path. So, like, and then what is he going to say to his producer? Like, well, I think we got World War Three out of him. Like, yes. Like, what do you... So that was my first reaction because, like, the headline was Biden says Putin's a killer. And it's like, okay, let's see the quote. And it's just Biden going, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. In indeed, killer. <laughs> Big killer. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Tell you he's a killer. The other part to this is that first of all, Biden's not great at lying. Obviously, he's not really even great at telling the truth because he's you That's know and remembering. 
that's what I love about the whole thing. It's clearly <laughs> someone telling a story of something that did not happen. Like, yeah, yeah, I went in there and I told him I was going to fight him. Yeah. Yeah, and I looked at him and he said, you have no soul. Like, I felt that read sincere to me. You felt like that didn't read sincere? I Honestly, that felt like Aaron Sorkin wrote his lines for him. And he was being like, <laughs> tough guy, Democrat president. But I mean, on the other hand, like, I, again, like, I do think Putin's a killer. Like, he was like ex-KGB. Like, he is actually a tough dude. But Biden's, I don't know. It just, it just looked funny to me. Because it was, like you said, partly him being, like, led down this path where, like, he just had to agree, basically, with the questions that were being put to him. Right. And then, and then him acting tough and then being asked, like, is he a killer? And be like, yeah, yeah, he is. And uh, sure. Yeah. Anyway, let's not talk about him too much because if you say his name three times, he's going to appear somewhere. <laughs> and I am a little scared. Yeah, I felt like he was that story felt too specific to be made up. But um, it, I just think it's funny that he was like, yeah, I did. I told him he didn't have a soul. And the response of, of, of Putin going, we understand each other. Like, <laughs> that's so on brand Putin. Like, I don't yeah, know the guy totally that well, but that is the most on brand. <laughs> So I think, so the words may be right, but I feel like Biden may have been shaking as he said them and Putin may have just not blinked and been like, correct. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he had to change his pants after the exchange. That's the part he forgot to, to say. But I did want to just play you the response that Putin gave when he heard about all of, all of this, about him being a killer, as in Stephanopoulos's words. What would I reply to him? I would say, I wish you health, I wish you health. I say that without any irony or joke. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. Hey, I wish you health. May nothing <laughs> terrible happen to you. Or your family, <laughs> or your dog, or your lizard. You know? It's a wonderful presidency you have. It'd be a pity if something were to happen to it. It's like, so great. And I, I just also love they had this posh British voice doing the doing the voiceover. I wish you health. I wish you health. And I say that with no irony. I know. I was trying to find something for our audio listeners. And I was like, oh, here's the BBC. Or I think this is Reuters. Yeah, it's very calm. You need a little a little more gravity on that one. But um, yeah, Putin wishing you health is like Harvey Weinstein wishing you to get laid. It is no. a poison chalice. No, I don't want the wish. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Biden's got to watch his back for sure. Oh, my God. You know, later, so like later in that same little like response that he did, he says something like, sometimes when we talk about other people, we're really talking about ourselves. Yes. I know you are. You said you are. But what am I? Yes. He says, Putin continues and is like, basically look in the mirror. Um, Yeah, I know you are, but what am I? And I know that that's like a childhood thing to say and like a playground thing to say, but uh, it's really applicable now. Um, And they both kind of say that, which is interesting that like Biden also is is like you have to know your enemy, you know, or you have to know these people. And he's kind of agreeing with Putin. Like, yes, it takes one to know one. It takes someone who's like participated mm-hmm. and okayed, you know, like the Iraq war or whatever, like the crime bill in order to understand one another. But Biden does something there that I haven't seen in a while. And maybe just because I'm so Trump traumatized. But he says, like, 
we're still cooperating around like the nu a nuclear agreement. Uh, we're still, you still have to actually work together. And it's like, whoa, 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 you know? And I feel like if we were, if Trump weren't just completely in Putin's, you know, hand, like the right wing would freak out about Biden even saying that he was working with Putin at all. So it's an interesting, like, I appreciate there's a little bit of weaving and like trying, and I want to get, I know Trita's going to come on later and talk to us more about this, but like, I, th I felt like that was skillful in some way, as much as Biden can have skill. <laughs> I, th I thought it was unfortunate that the guy who tripped going up a flight of stairs three times said we need to walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> but, but he, I also felt like this is kind of a little bit Trumpish, like people, like world leaders, especially Biden talking smack like this. Yeah. Is kind of unusual, but I feel like this is just, you know, this window that Trump has opened that now everyone is gonna, you know, willing to, to be more informal and more petty and, you know, play to the cameras more than they, than they were before. Yeah. I can't wait to see Biden and Kim Jong-un just like, how's that going to be? What's yeah, that going to be like? <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't wait to hear Biden's story about what he said to him. <laughs> and how he said it. I told him that I know you wear man heels. Yeah, I said it. And it takes one to know one. And it takes one to know one. I also wear heels. Why do you think I tripped on the, uh, those stairs? By the way, with the stairs, why the fuck are presidents subject to technology from like, why? What happened to a jet bridge? Why is right. it perpetually the ninth, like 1965 on a presidential runway like i'm he's old and yeah he probably should have had help but like and also hold the handrail bro and don't run so fast but like why are we making these guys walk upstairs i don't get it <laughs> the jet bridge y'all bring, you know, bring maybe, it back maybe someone maybe people used to think it was cool like to walk out of a private to walk yes, out of a private yeah. jet like that but now it's a liability now you need the jet bridge it's like when I fly Southwest and I'm like, oh, wind in my hair, suitcases. And you re it's actually just because you're at a dinky airport and Southwest is the cheapest airline. But but it makes you feel momentarily cool. Uh but Obama, you know, Obama kind of like walking down, you know, in aviators, like he could, he made it look a little bit cool. But this is like this is dangerous because this, I think, <laughs> could happen again. It's going to happen every time. This could happen walking down, which is like even worse. Why not just lean into it? Get a get one of the you know just a little like uh, the, the conveyor the stairmaster the conveyor belts that sort of like put a little blanket on you know and do the George Costanza my baby takes the morning train remember that where he's just like riding up I think he faked that he was disabled um, I just had to sing because I always have to sing every episode um or we've got one more story for you this was this was the week where Spain has agreed to a proposal from the left-wing party Mas País to launch a pilot program that would reduce the work week from five days to four days. Love uh, it. It's an idea that has gained traction from Germany to New Zealand and is hailed by its proponents as increasing productivity, improving mental health of workers, fighting climate change, addressing burnout, and a work-life balance. A work-life what? I'm sorry, I think, I, did I read that right? <laughs> Sorry, I was so, answering a Slack message for my fifth job. Um, <laughs> God. Personally, uh, I don't know about you. I've always believed in a four-hour work day. 
uh, work week. I really have because it's like, okay, four days of working, one day for laundry and groceries, one day to see your family, one day to masturbate and daydream. Like that's that's a light. That's a balanced life. And hopefully it's just a slippery slope where you can keep chipping away at the work days until <laughs> it's one to zero days of work, five to six days of laundry, masturbation. And daydreaming. daydreaming. Absolutely. Well, you're making Fox News' talking points for them because you know that that's what they're like. It's a slippery slope. Like, mind you. Uh, All they want to the do is jerk off and do laundry. Yeah, exactly. But at least we're cleaning up after ourselves. <laughs> Um, but okay. It's been 83 years since the U S has had a 40 hour work week. Uh, and it's been since 1919 is like, uh, Spain was one of the first countries in Western Europe to get a 40 hour work week. Now they're going for 32. Um, and I say, let's do it. Like after this much capitalist exploitation, I think that collectively we've accrued the PTO. I think we can say that (laughs) like, we want this back. And I think Spain, maybe I'm making this up. I feel like this is correct. Spain got that 40-hour week after a 44-day strike. A 44-day yes, consecutive ex- strike. That's exactly right. Yeah. They got that after a strike, which is, I mean, we got it after, God, the labor movement in the U.S. has been fighting, had been fighting for the 40-hour work week for like 50 years at that point. That's how long it took. Like at the turn of the century, you know, like Lucy Parsons and and – all those folks, Lucy Parsons, et cetera, were fighting for a 40-hour work week. And it didn't happen until like 1938 or something. Um, anyway, like, I'm... If you, you want to lose these hours, we're going to make you put them in getting the reduced hours. We're going to get the hours out of you one way or another. Yeah, not only I think we should fight for a work, uh, like a reduced work week, but then like deduct the time we spend fighting from the ec- like the hours we eventually have to work. You know, it's like that. It's we like could, how I think you could pay that in overtime. Exactly. Do you? Because I don't know about you, but I feel like you can only be productive for four hours. I like I like eight hour work day. Like let's go to the hours for. Oh my god. The rest of the four hours are like, oh, my God, let's talk with this person by, you know, in the snack room and like, you know, taking your poo and then getting your coffee. That's all you do. I mean, in the States, that's all we do just to get health care. That is it. 40 minutes. 40 minutes max, I think, is the most productivity I've ever managed in a single work day. (laughs) 40 minutes spread out over eight hours. He says this at like four in the morning, three in the morning in Istanbul. I'm not going to function for the next three days. I mean, this is this is just too much. This is too much output. <laughs> uh, well, if you're Spanish, uh, felicitaciones, and if you're not, um, let's get this strike going because I want that. Um, that's what happens when you have multiple parties, like the left wing party. I'm like, oh god, that's so great. We got to move on. Um, but before we do, I'm going to read some of your comments real quick. Uh, tell me what to put on Twitch. Biden to Putin. Killer says what? Uh huh. <laughs> Exactly. That's really what it was. J. and Lee, 1981, Biden's response had a very corn pop tone to it. Indeed. Whenever he tells the story, it always kind of goes there. Schultzy 100 on YouTube. If you want to work for more than if you want to work for more than that, there's something wrong and we should provide professional help for those types. Agreed. I, I think I'm one of those people that needs. Every time people are like, what do you do for fun from Jessica? I'm like, uh-huh. work Sing, single tier. <laughs> single tier. <laughs> 
cool. Yeah, exactly. Work. Um, and thank you for the super chats, Jordan Leaflang and Jay Manuel. So happy to have you all here. Let's get into it. I want to talk to a real professional because Amr and I are just fake in the funk. He is the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute, a D.C.-based think tank devoted to ending endless war and promoting a national security strategy centered on diplomacy and military restraint. He's authored three award-winning books on U.S. foreign policy, the latest being Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Mm. Please welcome. Trita Parsi. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my God. So good to have you here. Um, Trita, just we were talking a little bit about Putin and Biden's little like, you know, spat. How did what did you think of of Biden's story? And what did you think of that exchange off the bat? Well, I think you put your finger on it when it came to the exchange. It's really quite sad to see how much of this you know, exaggerated, masculine, aggressive stuff is actually coming because journalists are pushing politicians to say things like that. They're asking leading questions. Mm. And then the politicians are put in a pretty bad situation because if they don't respond, they're going to look weak and they're so terribly fearful of coming across as weak because they're going to get criticized by the other side. And it just becomes this loop that just reinforces itself. And then suddenly we have, you know, a Trump uh, or worse, in which, you know, the rhetoric is just completely out of control. And yeah. it takes so much diplomacy and trust building to build that back, to get back into a more normal situation. Yeah. Oh, God. Less less awful. I don't know if it's normal, but just less awful. Um, Trita, I, you... I, I, you actually had this great tweet thread today all about um, and you've been pu you've been putting out some great uh, articles around the links that I was talking about early in the show between anti-Asian racism and, you know, the U.S.'s posturing towards China generally. Um, you you wrote the best way to fight anti-Asian discrimination is to promote responsible management of ties with Asian powers. Can you expand on that? What do you mean? Sure. So I was tweeting an article by one of my colleagues, Jess Lee, who had a great piece on pointing out that, you know, when Biden went to Georgia, it was great. Thank you for doing that. But making a statement that doesn't take into account that so much of the anti-Asian uh, hatred and, and, and the, the rhetoric around it is actually coming from politicians themselves. If they speak like that, about China, about relations with uh, Asian countries. I mean, we have members of Congress that are going around saying that China is out to destroy us and all kind of completely exaggerated things. Mm -hmm. Well, a very direct result of that is that you're going to have an increase of hate crimes against Asian Americans. We've seen that happening in several other communities. And one of the experiences I learned from, you know, I was leading the National Iranian American Council before is that, you know, the initial reaction of communities is trying to be like, okay, we're going to tell everyone in America of how great we are and how much we have contributed to America so they don't think of us differently. And that's a natural uh, reaction. The problem is, though, it doesn't tend to work that well. It doesn't tend to actually move the needle that much. What mm -hmm. actually tends to be the most decisive factor that determines as to whether Asian Americans or you name the community uh, ends up getting a lot of discrimination is actually the foreign policy situation. Yeah. So if you want to address it, if you want to reduce anti-Asian hatred and discrimination, we have to first promote making sure that while there are real tensions between the US and China, this is not an easy question, 
No one is asking anyone to just roll over and play dead. But nevertheless, it can and should be handled responsibly without this over-the-top rhetoric that we first, of course, saw under Trump and unfortunately has continued under the Biden administration. Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, when, yeah, I, 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 I lost my damn thought. But, yo, oh, this was what I was going to say. You know, this was a week we were talking about uh, Andrew Yang and his run at the mayoral office in New York. And he spoke at a rally just today in New York against Asian American violence and hate crimes. And then once again, pushed his response, which is an, an, an NYPD special task force, which is one answer that we can destroy uh, on so many levels in the ways that it criminalizes the same people over and over again and does not help. But then the his other response has been, um, oh, yeah, hey, Asians, act more American. That'll do it. And he had a whole op-ed in the Washington Post this last year, excuse me, on, because of the pandemic, um, you know, hyperbole coming from the administration, like, just go out there. He literally wrote, wear red, white, and blue. <laughs> and so you talk about, yeah, the Iranian community, and, and that that hasn't actually worked when it comes to stopping some of the, you know, anti-Iranian, anti-Asian, like, policy. I, I, I think there's, there's one example, perhaps, one can point to where it has worked. Mm. is that when the actual community, the specific ethnic community, becomes more hawkish than the U.S. foreign policy itself. So I'm thinking about the Cuban-American community. That's when suddenly you get that type of separation between that community and the relations between the U.S. and that country. But mm. most ethnic minorities don't want that. They want to make sure that there's some degree of harmony. And again, that's not to excuse the behavior of the other country or anything about that. It's just about making sure that it's managed in a responsible way. And what Andrew Yang is saying is really putting the blame on Asian Americans. It's essentially, you didn't wear enough red, white, and blue. So you kind of were asking for it. And that's just completely unacceptable. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, and Amr, feel free to jump in whenever, um, but Trita, you were sort of sounding the alarm before Trump finally left because you were thinking, you know, it looked like, you know, off the back of the, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general, and then the nuclear scientists in November, um, that maybe the U.S. was going to try and like squeeze in another little war here. Uh, on Iran, and then it just went to war on itself on January 6th, and so that was sort of <laughs> nixed and nipped. But where do things stand now under a Biden administration? Um, what are you hoping to see, and what is like a you know, wh what is your assessment? Even though we've only been a couple months into it, sure. W would you mind if I go back through the background a little bit? Uh, because I think it's Please. best to understand what's happened in the last couple of months if we understand what happened in the last couple of years. Yeah. So the United States worked with several other countries and over several years and managed to get what I think is really a historic agreement in which essentially uh, all pathways for the Iranians to be able to reach a nuclear weapon is closed off. And in return, the U.S. and Iran uh, moved towards a different type of relationship. Sanctions were going to be lifted. And Iran came out of this, its political isolation. And then for about a year and a half, everything was fine or more or less. Uh, both sides were applying the agreement, were living up to the uh, uh, obligations they had. Then Trump comes in. And within a year or so, he leaves the deal. And this is something really important. For the first time ever, the United States started sanctioning countries 
for abiding by a UN Security Council resolution. This has never happened before. If we sanctioned the country, usually it was because they were violating a UN Security Council resolution. But yeah. here's the UN Security Council resolution that embodied the Iran nuclear deal that the US itself drafted, voted for. And now we were in the opposite universe in which we were actually sanctioning countries if they try to abide by it. For three years, that went on. For the first year, the Iranians actually completely lived up to the agreement. Even though the US had left, even though the US was sanctioning them more than ever before, they stayed in the deal. After about a year, they started to slowly use an article in the agreement that it would allow them to reduce their obligations if the other side wasn't performing at all. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and that went on for a year. And then that was clearly done because they were hoping that the next American president would come to his or her senses, honor the agreement that the United States had signed, recognize it was squarely in the interest of the United States to have that agreement. And if the Iranians had left, there would be you know, a renegotiation and that would be too timely and costly. So they stayed in the deal waiting for the U.S. to sort out its issues. Biden comes in. The rhetoric that he uses during the campaign is that he's going to come back into the deal quickly. Even the Democratic platform stated that a swift return to the JCPOA was the policy of the Democratic Party. He came in, but nothing has been swift. Mm -hmm. Instead, unfortunately, for reasons that I still cannot fully understand, uh, a silly game started with, with uh, the Biden folks saying that the Iranians have to move first before the U.S. comes back in. And, and we've essentially now lost roughly two and a half months. The Iranians are now entering their political season, which is their silly season. And we're likely not going to see any breakthrough now until after the Iranian elections in June, which Oof. means that most likely because the Iranians are so disappointed with the JCPOA and because the JCPOA is so closely associated with the current president and the foreign minister. The next president of Iran is likely going to be a conservative and he's likely going to rally on a platform opposing the JCPOA. And that may mean that the opportunity may have been lost forever. And all of this because we insisted that the other side should move first, even though we were the ones that were outside of the deal. Jesus. It's very uh, like, uh, like you hang up first. No, you. But like with weapons and uh yeah neither of them is the life make and death person. version of that yeah the yeah. life and death version of that very cutesy um uh like metaphor why weren't they listening to you trita why the fuck are they dragging their heels <laughs> didn't well, someone say hey yo the election season is in iran and if you don't move on this it, the window is going to close I have to say a lot of folks are quite surprised because it's these very same people who were part of the Obama team when they negotiated. It's not the Obama administration, but a lot of these people were there. And a lot of the things they were saying during the campaign and when they were out of office was actually spot on. There's so many examples of them tweeting, criticizing Trump for what he has done, promising mm -hmm. that the U.S. should go back in. So there wasn't much of a sense that there was a need to really need to talk to them in that direction because the impression clearly was that they had themselves reached that conclusion and would be implementing what they had promised. Now, there's still some hope, but I have to say I'm deeply disappointed because I think we will end up in a much worse situation and I don't understand the value of playing that hard bargain. I mean, after the United States violates a deal and goes out of the deal, it is not so that the U.S. is standing suddenly, miraculously, is restored just because a new president comes in. 
Whether yeah. we like it or not, we have to deal with the legacy of what Trump did and how that harmed and damage US's standing. So there has to be done, something needs to be done to kind of restore the trust, restore the idea that the US is gonna play fairly. And that was not done. Instead, we just sat there and insisted that the other side needed to move first. It's almost like we're not honest negotiators. You know, like we, <laughs> isn't that like, just just floating that hypothesis that maybe we're not the best ones to be doing this. Uh, Amr, we can get, can Australia like, Sort us out, please. Can don't, they be... don't involve Australia at all. <laughs> <laughs> but it did. It did remind me. You know, when you said we're, we're just to go back. You know, when you said were you talking about uh, Andrew Yang's speech and um, even you know Biden's response in, in Atlanta after the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand. Um, yeah. You know, any number of Australian politicians came forward to express their sympathies, but you know, at the same time, had been involved so deeply in whipping up like really you know, horrible sort of Islamophobia and racism towards the Muslim community. And, and it was just so easy for them to say, yeah, this, it's really bad that this happened. But guys, like you made it happen, you know? And, yeah. you know, when we talk about, you know, being apologetic doesn't work for a community. I mean, I know, you know, 20 years of the Muslim community apologizing and being more British or more American or more Australian it hasn't changed anything because, well, because like you said, the foreign policy motives haven't changed at all, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no, you know, the, the necessity for leaders to tone it down either domestically or abroad, just, you know, that incentive doesn't exist. So there's and, nothing- and let, really me, let me add something to what Amr said. We can just actually use your own uh, conversation earlier on. It doesn't matter how many museums Muslim Americans or Asian Americans would, you know, found and fund. It doesn't matter, you know, all these kind of things that they would be able to tout. None of it would get as much attention as an interview with Biden in which he says that Putin or she or someone else is a killer. That is going to be what's going to be all over the news. That's going to yeah. be what every average American gets to see. There's no way any community would have the decibel that would be able to outrank outdo what the regular news is going to put on, particularly if there's a very negative development. And as a result, all of those investments, as good and valuable as they are, and they should be done, but they should not be done with the expectation that that will actually insulate a specific community from such discrimination and hatred. It unfortunately simply doesn't work that way. Yeah. And, and my response to this, you know, I'm always like, is solidarity and internationalism in, in, in a like in the way that will make Steve Bannon, you know, choke on his own spit and die. Like, I want, you know, I want, you know, we need people and people's movements from all these different places to connect with one another because our governments are not honest arbiters. They're not they are not honestly representing um, like they're not honestly representing the the issues that are actually going on in countries. Um, and I wouldn't trust them to anyway. You know, I would trust social movements in, in China and I would trust social movements in Iran. And that is why I think it's really important for those when we feel a pull of of sort of, um, you know, aggression towards China or Iran to remember that the people in those respective countries have also been rising up and doing their damnedest to try and make sure that they have better representation that is more democratic. And so case in point, that conservatives in Iran hated the R Iran nuclear deal as well. Um, and 
so, you know, their conservatives and our conservatives are tight like this. They're on the same page and and we have to be the antidote. I want to ask you, Trita, about Saudi Arabia and Israel quickly. Like it's a huge conversation, but where are they at? Obviously, they do not want to see the Iran deal happen again um, for various reasons. But like where are they at in all this? What do you think their posturing is towards Biden right now? Obviously, we know Saudi Arabia, but <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, they should have been quite worried. I mean, if you're in Saudi Arabia and you were so tight with Jared Kushner and so tight with Trump um, and you did all of that, as did Bibi, supported Trump throughout. And, and, and as well as when Trump was doing really anti-Semitic things, Netanyahu never stepped away from his side. He was constantly there. And after seeing what Trump was doing to the democracy of the United States itself, they still stood by him. So yeah. I would have thought that perhaps they would be a little bit worried. But instead, it seems to me that they're not, because the signal from the Biden administration has been that they want to work with them and they want to resolve those tensions, et cetera. And I'm not arguing for a, a bad relationship uh, between the United States and any of these countries. I don't think it would be in our interest. But at the same time, when we had promised that after two decades of the Saudis doing so many destructive things in the Middle East, including all the spread of Wahhabism that has been so detrimental to the Islamic world itself. Mm. And he said on the campaign trail that he's going to make them the pariah as they are, and that he believed that MBS was behind the killing of Khashoggi. And then obviously they released the CIA report. Now, keep in mind, releasing the CIA report was law. It was mandated by Congress. They had to do so. But then they stop short of actually sanctioning MBS. I'm not a huge fan of broad-based sanctions, but targeted sanctions can be effective. In this specific case, not sanctioning them. What is the signal that we are sending? Particularly right. mindful of the fact that it was essentially the same day or within the same 48 hours that uh, Biden uh, issued um, ordered that attack in Syria in retaliation for some attack that an uh, Iraqi militia had done against U.S. bases in Iraq. And right. he was asked, what is the message here? And he said, the message is to Iran that they cannot act with impunity. But apparently MBS can, because yeah. we issued the report, but we did not go forward with any sanctions. And as long as we have that type of relations with any countries in the Middle East, in which we're essentially afraid of exacting a cost when they do tremendously destructive and disruptive things, then unfortunately we will be incentivizing them to be more disruptive because it carries no cost for them. What are we afraid of with Saudi Arabia? I feel like Israel, our fates are so, we're so linked, not fates, but just we're just so tied up that it's that feels like a different conversation. But what is the U.S. afraid of when it, specifically when it comes to Saudi Arabia? Well, one-fourth of all American arms sales goes to Saudi Arabia. And I think that should tell you quite a lot. We are not buying their oil to any specific number. In fact, many of the foundations for that relationship, uh, when it was created decades ago, are no longer valid. The Persian Gulf is not that strategically important to the United States, while oil, of course, is important. Uh, the US itself does not need it, and it doesn't need to have a military presence in the region in order to be able to safeguard it. The right. only thing the U.S. actually needs to do is to make sure that no other hegemon emerges in the Middle East to take control of it. And there is no such candidate, any viable candidates at this time. So a lot of those different things don't even exist. And this is actually exactly what the Saudis and the Israelis are afraid of. They're afraid of that the United States is starting to realize 
that it does not need to be in the Middle East militarily and dominate the Middle East militarily because our interests have shifted away. We don't need to do that. For them, that's a bad thing. They want the United States to be there militarily because it provides them with a security umbrella. In the case mm. of Israel, they frankly don't need it because their, their military is so strong, they will be fine. Now, of course, it's helpful to them, increase the increases their maneuverability, but do they actually need it? No. Mm. If you're in Saudi Arabia, yeah, you do need it because you suck at war and you're not good at it and you get yourself in all kinds of trouble and you want the United States to bail you out all the time. You're but, good at war in Yemen. Exactly. Five years in, they have not achieved anything. So from their perspective, it's critical to keep the United States engaged, committed, I would say trapped in mm. the Middle East militarily. And what they're doing right now, for instance, we're trying to sabotage the Iran deal is precisely because of this, because the Iran deal, as much as it was a nuclear deal, actually had another very, very important component. If the United States and Iran resolve the nuclear issue, and the risk of war between Iran and the United States essentially evaporated or was significantly minimized, that meant that it, the door would open for the United States to be able to leave the region militarily. Because the one thing that keeps the US in the region is that risk of war with Iran or the need to yeah. contain Iran militarily. If that issue is resolved, it actually would enable the US to leave. And that's precisely why both the Israelis, the Emiratis and the Saudis were against the nuclear deal and continue to be so today. So good. This is great. Um, thank you for laying all of that out. Um, and and just what are your thoughts on the man that I called Abe Lincoln? But any 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 thoughts initially on Anthony Blinken? Um, and if you see the Biden administration moving toward a hey, maybe we can get out, maybe. Maybe we can leave the Middle East. Maybe we can leave China alone. We don't have to talk about China, but Middle East. Well, um, I think there were clear signs. And, and I know, Tony, I have deep, deep respect for him and Jake and others in the team. I tend to disagree on some things. And I would definitely have used the first couple of months of the Biden administration quite differently from what they did. Um, but um, I think there were some signs that they started to see the reality that there is a need for some sort of a shift away. Jake Sullivan actually had a great article in Foreign Affairs last May, together with Daniel Benayne, who's now also in the uh, administration, calling for an injection of much more diplomacy in the region and helping the region towards its own regional dialogue. I would go further, but I think that's a great step. I think yeah. it, would, it needs to be coupled with a massive reduction of American troops in the region. The troops need to come home because in fact, my argument is I don't think the Saudis and the Emiratis will actually genuinely engage in regional dialogue with the purpose of making it successful unless they know the U.S. is leaving militarily. Because if the U.S. is still going to stay or if there's a chance that the failure of diplomacy will cause the U.S. to stay, then they will work to cause the diplomacy to fail. Because yeah. from their perspective, that is more beneficial. But there were signs that the administration were looking at this uh, and, and perhaps not moving as fast as or as far as I would like it. But they were starting to recognize the need to really reduce the U.S.'s military engagement in the region. But the first moves we have seen so far does not seem to actually help us get on that path. Now, again, it's only three months or so things can change. But those first three months are quite important because it kind of sets the tone. Sure. And in the case of the JCPOA, the first couple of months were crucial because the opportunities for actually reviving it will be dramatically smaller in just a couple of weeks. Look, 
you never know the impact of CBS's new sitcom, United <laughs> States of Al. Like that, I'm not saying. And whatever potential Iranian spinoffs there could be. Exactly. The spinoffs, the, you know, like we, the writer's rooms, who knows? It'll all be Emiratis. <laughs> Throw them you know, a, a, a Biden administration negotiator and an Iranian diplomat turns into some crazy buddy cop comedy. <laughs> Possibly. Yes. No one steal that. Don't steal none of your Twitch viewers or whoever. Don't steal that from us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I'm going to get to it. After this, you're going to write that. Um, uh, thank you so much, Trita, for breaking all that down. Um, I love your, 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 yes. And you're just, your clarity is so great. And could you just, you know, just message Tony, just be like, sup. <laughs> could you not? Well, <laughs> Anyway, I know you've got his number. Put his number in the chat. We'll hit him up. Yeah. And <laughs> we'll all hit him up. We're, we're, we'll all just hit him up. Uh, we know you've got him. Um, and yeah, will you guys both stick around for one final segment? Sure. Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And thank you guys so much for all of your comments and super chats. Uh, and remember, patreon.com slash bituation room for all this fire. Just this raining fire and analysis and, uh, and all that good shit. Every Sunday night. Um, all right. Our final segment. Because some of the responses to a lot of these hate crimes and are always and, and anything, really. There was a case of um, a London woman who was murdered by a police officer. And the answer was police officers. And now uh, Andrew Yang and others saying, well, we need a special task force of the police to stop uh, anti-Asian hate crimes. Um, we say no. We say Let's, let's do something different. So, guys, in the chats, let me know. Instead of cops, try what? Try blank. What's a, what's a, what's a good idea to try? Uh, this is instead of cops, try blank. <laughs> Sorry. I'm laughing at our own interstitials. Um, that's what I do. Amr, what do you think? If it's like this is a new ad campaign. Hey, instead of cops. Comedians, try. comedians try. and nuclear nuclear negotiators. <laughs> God. Pairs. Each one is paired with a negotiator? Yeah, no, so a comedian is paired with a nuclear deal negotiator. Right. And they travel around in, we won't call them police cars, some kind of, maybe, maybe those bikes, you know those bikes that two people ride at once? Yeah, tandem, tandem bikes. bikes. Yeah. Yeah. I think tandem bikes in and of themselves would stop any kind of violence because you're just so distracted by Are how you, doofy. Yeah, where does that come from? People look and you're like, teams, what? These teams, <laughs> these mobile, these crack mobile teams will go around diffusing various situations. How many or at least good... distracting the authorities long enough for a revolution to occur that will delete yeah. the necessity for police in the first place? There's totally. a lot of layers to my scheme. I don't think I can really. No, I like it. it. I look anything's better than cop. I think this works. I mean, my question is, how many nuclear negotiators are there? I don't know. Treat it ballpark. It. We talking like twenty good ones? Five? Twenty. Twenty is probably a, a generous yeah, number. But, but with Zoom, how many could we train <laughs> up very quickly? You know, it's all about skill sharing. Yeah, you you know, DeVry offers like some quick nuke training, nuke negotiating classes. Um, it's all online now. I think Betsy DeVos is probably launching that uh, pilot program. Training via Twitch, you know? You just you can get trained up. 
get your degree in nuclear negotiation via Twitch, the University <laughs> of Twitch. Hell yeah. All right. I, I, I see some pedicabs. Uh, instead of cops, try pedicabs. Okay. Instead of cops, try kittens. I like that. I think throwing a kitten on anyone who's trying to commit a crime is ve also very distracting. Um, Trita, what do you think? Instead of cops, try what? I, I got to tell you, I think Amra hit the nail on the head. I mean, <laughs> that's, that was a profound proposal right there. there. As you said, there's a lot of layers to it. There, there, there's a lot we can do with that one. All right. Okay, so we're co-signing Amra's. All right, we're picking sides. I get this. I thought you were supposed to be into diplomacy, <laughs> Trita, but that's cool. <laughs> Great. Um, some comments were try try real allocating funds, try grandmothers, ooh, try Ben and Jerry's milkshakes, love it. Try social workers, try therapy always, and try yoga. I love that. Try weed, try guitars, try try Samuel L. Jackson. Mm. <laughs> Let's just get him on the street, just berating people, like asking what the fuck is wrong with them. <laughs> I think that's great. Mine, okay. Instead of cops, um. Try trying cops. Ah, you know, for like the crimes Mass that they commit too. <laughs> Group trials for entire police forces. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Instead of trying to get it, but I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Trita got it. Uh, let's see. I'm waiting for the chat to get it. Yeah. Um, I think that instead of instead of cops, try trying them and seeing if you can convict them uh, once or at all. Um, Try Instant Pot also, just for shits and gigs. Um, Trita Parsi, thank you so much for being here. Um, where can people follow you on Twitter? T Parsi, at T Parsi. At T Parsi. And uh, is there like a newsletter or something that people want? Yeah, like... you guys have to go to www.quincyinst, which stands for quincyinstitute.org. Sign up for our newsletter. You'll get uh, the Jess Lee article that you mentioned, for instance, earlier on. Um, all of that stuff you'll get if you sign up for the newsletter. So good. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, also, you know, read Trita's book if you want to, you know, thank Obama. Uh, Trita, although I will no. probably never get another chance to directly ask an Iran expert this. What was with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad tweeting Tupac lyrics? I got to tell you, I've not come it across a was single him. expert on anything, forget about Iran expert, that have managed to figure that one out. So if you figure that on, you got to let me know what's going on over there. When did that he, happen again? He, I mean, like a, a while ago. A couple of years ago. He's, he's, someone, a year ago. I assume someone else is in control of his um, uh, Twitter feed. Because he's like... Up, but then he started posting pictures of himself at his computer. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So he, he it's his account. But I guess someone else is also in charge of it uh, because, and he's with his approval, I'm saying. And they're tweeting all kinds of, uh, you know, things about Tupac and the NBA and all that kind it's of very stuff. It's very it woke extremely content. confusing. So it's not like every other city we go, every other video, I see the same hoe. Like, that's not the lyric. It was <laughs> no, a no, different it was one. like changes. It's like, it's like the wokest of Tupac material. It was changes. Okay, good. Yeah. Changes is a good one. Dear Mama. Okay. That's hilarious. And now I have to look at that. Um, Trita, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you so take, much for having me. Take good care. And Amr Rahman, you can finally go to sleep. <laughs> I gotta write that pilot. You gotta write that. I gotta write that Iran <laughs> pilot now. Damn it. Oh, buddy comedy. 
Buddy cop comedy. I love it. Um, where can people find your work? On Twitter. As we established earlier, I still don't have a website. Amr doesn't have a website, but he definitely has viral clips of his stand-up because he's that, he's that good that he just pops up and, like, crushes a set and then goes back to living a life. And uh, I hate you for that. No. <laughs> you can find me uh, on, on Twitter and, and YouTube. Great. That's, the best. That's, um, that's what I've managed to do. Two platforms. At Amr underscore Rahman. Thank you so yes. much. Be well. Thank you for being here. Come back and best of luck returning to the stand up scene. He's going to crush it again. Please check out his clips. They're fucking great. Um, he's got a really like eternal bit on reverse racism. He's got a whole bit about punching Nazis. I was going to play it. Um, but you guys all have to go check it out. And thank you all for being here. Thank you for the super chats. Uh, Wayne uh, Sugihara on YouTube. Great show. Excellent guests and thoughtful, honest, and passionate analysis. Uh, thank you, Franny. You're welcome. I, my brain, I feel like, has been on very big Sunday fry mode, even though it's an hour earlier and I should be more present. Um, Electric Blue Omelette Dragon, thank you so much for that super chat. That's really sweet. Uh, got my 1400 this week. Sharing this love. Thanks, Francesca, for always entertaining us with your show and incredible guests. I'm going to cry. Oh, my God. I'm fine. I'm fine. That was really, really, really nice of you. Um, This show is a total labor of love. So, and that labor belongs to not just myself, but Becca Roofer, Kelly Carey, Dorsey Shaw, and Ellie Hoffman. Thank you all so much. And thank you guys for making this a reality. Once again, five stars on iTunes. Join the Frantifa, patreon.com slash bituation room. And remember... Fuck the patriarchy, fight the power, and don't just bitch about it, be about it. We'll see you next week, guys. Bye!